Hey guys, how's it going? Thanks for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. On this episode, we are concluding our case study of the incredible company known as Apple, formerly known as Apple Computer, and the legendary visionary that built the company, the late Steve Jobs. And we're going to be getting into his departure and his epic return to really not only take the company into the future, but initially just to save the company. They were on life support. They were about to file bankruptcy before their founder, their CEO, former CEO, their visionary, their Cape Crusader, Steve Jobs, gets lured back in to save the day. So we're going to talk about that and all other things, Apple and where it's at today and maybe where it's going in the future. So this is a great episode packed with a lot of fun facts, a lot of cool stories. Hope you guys are ready. Let's get into the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Welcome to story time. It's time. It's time again for another story time. I'm your host, Sunny D. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. Whether you're tuning in on Facebook, whether you're tuning in on Instagram, uh, whether you're tuning in on Twitter, whether you're tuning in on the podcast, however you are tuning in, thanks again for being here. Excited to continue story time. Excited for this episode of story time. These uh, these series that I'm doing on discovering great business leaders, uncovering stories, sharing stories. Um, different businesses that I picked out of my library. Definitely, it's it's a lot of fun for me because I'm getting to, A, I'm getting to go back through these stories again. So if you're hearing them for the first time, that's cool for you. I get to hear them and share them and hear them again uh, for a second or third or fourth time. So that's even cooler for me. But just want to thank you guys for being here. Hopefully, you'll share this stream, share this broadcast, share this podcast um, with your friends, with your colleagues, with anybody you think uh, you know may be interested in just learning a little bit about some of these iconic brands, some of these iconic people, individuals that have shaped and changed you know our future, our current reality um, through things, actions, businesses that they've built. Um, this past series right now we're going over the story of Apple Computer formerly known as Apple Computer, now it's called Apple, and that's it, just Apple. It was Apple Computer because they had to kind of like, well, if we just called it Apple, would people know that we were a computer company because Apple could be, um, maybe could be mistaken for a fruit company? I don't know. And that's really why they called it Apple because Steve Jobs was a fruitarian for a while, lived on an apple orchard, helped harvest apples, and you know really thought it was a kind of a disarming, uh, something everybody knows, and uh, very um, gentle kind of name, inviting name. And so they called the company Apple. And I've been reading to you from Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of Steve Jobs called appropriately Steve Jobs and we've been going through and learning about a lot of the beginnings of the company how him and Steve Wozniak formed this company starting in the 70s starting in his parents garage tinkering around and then how it became the juggernaut that it is today spanning the world 
impacting people in so many countries in so many different ways from not only the products that they build, the products that they design, the technology that they deliver, but also through jobs, through their um, retail stores. They have stores all over, and I'll share some of those statistics today. Um, and all of the different ways that they're, they've been able to do what Steve wanted to do, what Steve set out to do in the beginning, which was put a dent in the universe. And that was one of his, uh, one of his goals, one of his things that he said, you know, I want to put a dent in the universe. So 44 years old, 44 years young, the company is today. And when you look back and you think, you know, coming from the garage to now building a global brand, a global company, an iconic brand, an iconic company, there's not many companies that when they, I don't really think hardly any, when they release a product that people will line up and camp out for days to be the first to get their hands on this product like they do with an iPhone. Um, yesterday we celebrated the iPhone's 13th anniversary. It's only 13 years old. And um, the trillions of dollars that the iPhone has created, um, the sales that it's created, the number of units and the billions of devices that have been sold. You know, I shared my own history with me and Apple. Um, being an, a late adopter, I never had Apple computers as a kid. I never really knew. I mean, it was just something. I mean, it was out there. I heard of it, but never got my hands on it um, until really I became a late adopter of the iPhone. And the rest, as they say, is history. I've I've been a champion of Apple products ever since. I've used their products ever since. They just they work. They do what they are supposed to do, and a little bit more, you know. And that's what Steve Jobs wanted to create was this um, shape shifting, game changing company, a brand, a business. Um, so we're into the story. We're now at the point where uh, where we left off, where Steve is actually um, he's out recruiting. Because one of the things that he was mature enough to know was that he wasn't equipped to be the president of a company that was building and becoming as big as Apple was becoming. So he started to look out there and the board started to look out there to try to find a CEO, a grown-up to come and, you know, to, to come and run the business. And thinking about that. Um, thinking about you know some of the early people that were part of the company, he's you know looking around and he's you know not having any luck. And actually, the first person that he targeted uh, for the job wasn't Scully, who I mentioned yesterday. That was that was who he got, but that wasn't the first person um, that he had targeted. When he decided to go out and start looking. Uh, looking for a new, not even, I guess you could say new, but I guess you would really just say a CEO. He had led the company and he had ideas about running the company and, and thinking about, you know, being that guy. But he also was like, you know, if we're going to go global, if we're going to make this as big as I want to make it, uh, we're going to need to bring in somebody who's uh, marketer, somebody who's a product guy, somebody who's who understands the um, the industries that we're trying to disrupt, that we're trying to go into, and that's uh, what led him ultimately to John Scully. 
But that wasn't the first guy. I'm going to tell you about the first guy as they set out. Now, also keep in mind, you know, Wozniak, they're building products. They've got the Lisa named after his uh, daughter. They've got the Apple One, the Apple Two, which we talked about. They got, you know, all of these products. And then there's the Macintosh. And if you're watching this on Facebook, you can see the Macintosh is what I have behind me. This is the game changer. This is, you know, the pivotal product that really kind of introduces Apple to the world. And as this is all happening, you know, Mike Markula, who was the president, reluctant president, he never really wanted to be president of Apple, knows that, you know, we got to find somebody to really kind of help take this company um, to the next level. And the person that they're targeting is a guy named Don Estridge, who had built IBM's personal computer division from scratch and launched a PC that even though Jobs and his team disparaged it, was now outselling Apple. So Estridge was, you know, in uh, Boca Raton, Florida, or Boca Raton, however you want to say it. And that's who Jobs is going after. Um, he goes at him pretty hard, offers him money, a million dollar salary, million dollar signing bonus. Um, but Estridge is like, no, he turns him down. And so he's not, you know, he's he's like, I'm not jumping ship. He's like, I'm in, you know, I'm part of IBM. And at IBM, you know, you could think about it. At that time, IBM's like the Navy. And he's like, I don't want to, uh, I'm a member of the Navy. I don't want to leave this establishment to go be a pirate. And that's what he looked at Apple. It's kind of an unproven, untested um, newcomer. So he's kind of looking at it as like, it's like a pirate uh, crusade that they're on. So then, you know, Markala, who's the president, he gets a, a professional headhunter, right? So what is a professional headhunter? Somebody that's gonna find you the guy that you're looking for. And he goes out looking around and he comes across John Scully, who at that time was president of Pepsi-Cola a division of PepsiCo, and John Scully had done something called the Pepsi Challenge. Now, if you're a young buck and you never heard of the Pepsi Challenge, it was one of those things where it was like a taste test where is this Coke, is it Pepsi, and it was like, can you guess? Um, so it was like this this campaign, and it, it took off, and it kind of really helped um, establish, I guess you could say establish Pepsi-Cola as the, as the, the leader um, of, of the colas. So they hear about this, and so Steve starts this kind of courtship of John Scully, trying to get John Scully to come and, you know, take a look at the products and think about, you know, maybe doing some mentorship and thinking about working with Steve and working with Apple. Um, but Scully's reluctant. You know, he's got a great position. He's with a great company. And the thing that got him, the thing that got him was when, you know, after all this back and forth, they're traveling. You know, he's going, Steve is going to see him, spending time with him. Um, but Steve says to him, so I'm going to read you this, this part right here. So Scully uttered one last demurral, a token suggestion that maybe they should just be friends and he could offer Jobs advice from the sidelines. Anytime you're in New York, I'd love to spend time with you. He later rec recounted the climactic... climactic climactic moment here it comes steve's head dropped right so this is basically scully turns him down he's like you know i, I can offer you some kind of like consulting i can offer you some advice from time to time when you come to new york um, kind of mentorship 
you know, teach you some of the things that I know. So he's kind of lightly turning Steve Jobs down for this offer to become um, their, their guy at Apple. And then Steve's head dropped as he stared at his feet. After a weighty, uncomfortable pause, he issued a challenge that would haunt me for days. And this is in the words of John Scully. And he says, do you want to spend the rest do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want a chance to change the world? So that was it. That was a you know as Scully felt it was like a punch in the stomach. There was no response possible other than to ask acquiesce. He had an uncanny ability to always get what he wanted, to size up a person and know exactly what to say to reach a person, Scully recalled. I realized for the first time in four months that I couldn't say no. The winter sun was beginning to set. They left the apartment and walked back across the park to the Carlisle. So there we go. Got him. So, and this is where there's a giant plot twist because now Steve Jobs brings on John Scully and they're, you know, and Scully, he's, you know, a corporate guy. He's looking at it, you know, corporate lens. Steve is more of this kind of a renegade, entrepreneur, artist, technology, visionary guy. And so there's a little bit of riff and a little bit of, you know, kind of clash as Scully tries to come in and implement some of the things that helped him be successful and make Pepsi more successful. It's just not going over well. Uh, they're just not getting along. So they're going back and forth and having issues with each other. And that's when their disagreements uh, start to mount one on top of the other about pricing, about strategy, about this, about that. There's complaints. Um, there's all this stuff, right? There's uh, the the disagreement over how to price the Macintosh. You know, it, they thought at first it was going to be a thousand dollar machine, but then Jobs' design changes had pushed up the cost so that the plan was to sell it at nineteen ninety five. However, when Jobs and Scully began making plans for a huge launch and marketing push, Scully decided that they needed to charge five hundred dollars more. To him, the marketing costs were like any other production cost and needed to be factored into the price. Jobs resisted furiously. It will destroy everything we stand for, he said. I want to make this a revolution, not an effort to squeeze out profits. Scully said it was a simple choice. He could have the 1995 price or he could have the marketing budget for a big launch, but not both. So that was just one example that they're going back and forth, back and forth, um, and they're ready to launch this. Now, the launch of the Macintosh, it was a game changer. Uh, 1983, you know, they're, they're ready. They're at a sales conference and, you know, they're talking about, you know, the launch of what's coming. And at the same time, behind the scenes, there's this whole riff going on between the other tech guy at the time, which was Bill Gates. So Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are kind of like the two wonderkins of, of tech. You know, Bill Gates is building Microsoft. Steve Jobs is building Apple Computer. Apple Computer, the sexy kind of artistic um, 
edge, you know, cutting edge technology. And then Steve Jobs is kind of building this mass market software and uh, building, doing his own thing. Both are successful. Um, but in, you know, 1983, 1984, when they're coming in for the launch of the Macintosh, you know, there's lots of things going on. There's this one high point of 1983 um, coming from the book here at the Apple sales conference in Hawaii. Where they did a skit based on a TV show called The Dating Game. Jobs played MC and his three contestants whom he had convinced to fly to Hawaii were Bill Gates and two other software executives, Mitch Caper and Fred Gibbons. As the show's jingly theme song played, the three took their stools. Gates, looking like a high school sophomore, got wild applause from the 750 Apple salesmen when he said, During 1984, Microsoft expects to get half of its revenues from software for the Macintosh. Jobs, clean-shaven and bouncy, gave a toothy smile and asked if he thought that the Macintosh's new operating system would become one of the industry's new standards. Gates answered, To create a new standard takes not just making something that's a little bit different, it takes something that's really new and captures people's imagination. And the Macintosh, of all the machines I've ever seen, is the only one that meets that standard. Oh, snap! Right? So Gates is giving props, Macintosh. So that's how their relationship was. They're developing software that's going to run on the Macintosh. So Steve is building the machine, and then Jobs has got the software going on. And as things start to go, uh, Microsoft at that time is edging away from being primarily a collaborator with Apple to being more of a competitor. It would continue to make application software like Microsoft Word for Apple, but a rapidly increasing share of its revenue would come from the operating system it had written for the IBM personal computer. The year before, 279,000 Apple IIs were sold, compared to 240,000 IBM PCs and its clones. But the figures for 1983 were coming in starkly different. 420,000 Apple IIs versus 1.3 million IBMs and its clones. And both the Apple III and the Lisa were dead in the water. Just when the Apple sales force was arriving in Hawaii, this shift was hammered home on the cover of Business Week. Its headline, Personal Computers, and the winner is dot 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 IBM. The story inside detailed the rise of the IBM PC. The battle for market supremacy is already over, the magazine declared. In a stunning blitz, IBM has taken more than 26% of the market in two years and is expected to account for half the world market by 1985. An additional 25% of the market will be turning out IBM-compatible machines. That put all the pressure on the Macintosh due out in January 1984, three months away, to save the day against IBM. So this is all going on. And then they do this huge launch. They have this incredible kind of commercial. And you got to check it out, the 1984 ad. Uh, they play and, and uh, the girls run in and it's like all this. You know, it's kind of like they're 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 taking these jabs at IBM because IBM they're looking at IBM as kind of like Big Brother watching over everybody in the commercial, and then this 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 rogue warrior female comes running up with this sledgehammer and like smashes the screen and while it's trying to program all these people's minds, it's it's pretty cool. 
It's a um, it's a playoff of the George Orwell novel, Why 1984 Won't Be Like 1984. And so that's that was kind of the thing. So the 1984 ad was a way of reaffirming to himself and to the world his desired self-image. The heroine with a drawing of a Macintosh emblazoned on her pure white tank top was a renegade out to foil the establishment. Um, by hiring Ridley Scott, fresh off the success of Blade Runner as the director, Jobs could attach himself and Apple to the cyberpunk ethos of the time. With the ad, Apple could identify itself with the rebels and hackers who thought differently, and Jobs could reclaim his right to identify with them as well. So they do this, right, ad, big time. They got the big time director, awesome commercial. You can YouTube it, check it out. Um, Scully was initially skeptical when he saw the storyboards, but Jobs insisted that they needed something revolutionary. He was able to get an unprecedented budget of $750,000 just to film the ad, which they planned to premiere during the Super Bowl. Ridley Scott made it in London using dozens of real skinheads among the enthralled masses listening to Big Brother on the screen. A female discus thrower was chosen to play the heroine. Using a cold industrial setting dominated by metallic gray hues, Scott evoked the dystopian aura of Blade Runner. Just at the moment when Big Brother announces, We shall prevail! The heroine's hammer smashes the screen and it vaporizes in a flash of light and smoke. So it's pretty awesome when that happens and then it's like, Why 1984? will not be like 1984. So that's a Super Bowl ad. They blow up and it's a sensation. It takes off. All three networks and 50 local stations aired news stories about the ad, giving it a viral life unprecedented in the pre-YouTube era. It would eventually be selected by both TV Guide and Advertising Age as the greatest commercial of all time. Bam! And that's that guy that I got behind me. That was the launch of the Macintosh. So now they're off and running. Everything is going, going, going. 1984 is a huge year. The Macintosh is here. Everybody wants to know. IBM, you know, is, is still there, right? Microsoft's in the wings. Things now start getting real tight with the Microsoft, IBM, and Apple kind of battle because now Macintosh they want more of the exclusivity relationship with Microsoft and Bill Gates but Bill Gates is about getting his money so he's thinking why am I only going to deal work with you it'd be kind of like you know saying no to all this other revenue and so that's where you know they're having a big problem with Microsoft and that's where you know Jobs and Gates their relationship goes south. And so when they go south, their partnership is kind of over. Um, they're fighting. Apple's getting into battles with Microsoft. And what Apple ends up doing is Apple's suing Microsoft. And they're suing them for like ripping off their design. They're suing them for copying um, you know, their, their graphic user interface concepts and all this stuff is happening they're being sued uh, jobs and gates are definitely not you know not friendly anymore 
And that goes on for years and years and years and years. And then meanwhile, internally, Steve Jobs and John Scully are feuding. Um, so when Macintosh launches, sales initially are awesome. They're good, but begin to taper off dramatically after the first three months due to its high price. Remember that pricing issue. Slow speed and a limited range of available software. In early 85, the sale, this sales slump ends up triggering a power struggle between Jobs and CEO Scully, who got hired a couple years earlier by Jobs. Oh, so what happens? Scully's like, we got to remove Jobs. We got to get him off the Macintosh team. And we get the board of directors in there. Uh, they agree with Scully because he gave up a little too much control, Jobs did. Um, so they agree with Scully and they decide, yep, you know, you're right. This guy's kind of a liability right now, even though, even though, right, even though he created the company. Right, he created everything, and and the bitter part about that is the fact that he hired um, he hired this guy. So they decide to side with Scully, and the board of directors tell you know Scully to contain Jobs and his ability to launch expensive forays into untested products. Right, they think that he's because that's what visionaries do. Right, they test out stuff, they try things. So they're like, this guy is—he's like a rogue warrior. Um, we need to, you know, we need to get a basically get a leash on him before he destroys anything else. And then, uh, rather than like submit to Scully, Jobs um, tries to get Scully out of there. He wants to get him ousted uh, from his leadership role at Apple. And then, informed by Jean-Louis Gasset, Scully found out that Jobs had been attempting to organize a coup and called an emergency executive meeting at Apple, which Apple executive staff sided with Scully and stripped Jobs of all operational duties. So you're done. So guess what happens? September 1985, Jobs is like, all right, I'm out. See ya. He's like, I'm out. I don't have to be around here for this. And he quits. He resigns. He resigns. So now here's where it gets interesting. So he resigns. Some of the um, some of the key people that he takes with him, he's like, you know what, guys? We're going to go create the next big thing. We're going to go create the next big company. And guess what he calls it? Next, N-E-X-T, Inc. Um, and Wozniak also quit his active employment earlier in uh, 1985 to pursue other ventures. So now they lost. Both Steves are gone, right? Both Steves are gone. And, you know, Wozniak was frustrated with, you know, what was going on with Apple II. And, you know, the company had been going in the wrong direction, he thought, for years. And um, he was saying that. But despite that, you know, everything that's going on, he leaves amicably and both Jobs and Wozniak also they they remain shareholders but they also like kind of are off pursuing their thing so now what happens now Steve is like all right now he's got complete autonomy he's got free to do what I want any old time type of stuff going on starts building next Apple is now floundering Scully's not a product guy He's not a technology product guy. He's a he's a soda product guy, maybe a consumable uh, consumer uh, consumer product guy, but not 
in a position to be able to lead this technology juggernaut called Apple. And so after this departure, the Macintosh, you know, goes on all kinds of changes and um, higher price points. Um, they're going through all, and then they start bringing out, you know, other things and other products and all this stuff. Everything starts going sideways. The company starts losing market share, losing market share. Then guess who gets kicked out? Scully, you're done. They bring in another, they get another CEO in 1990. And Michael Spindler, right? He's the new CEO, or he's the new COO, I should say. Um, Gasset, he leaves a year later. Um, in 1990, they try a couple of lower cost models, Macintosh Classic, Macintosh LC, Macintosh IISI. Um, all of which they saw significant sales due to pent up demand. And then in 91, they start, you know, bringing out, they're going all like the PowerBook, you know, they get the portable, they get System 7, they go through classic Mac OS. Um, they're doing, you know, okay for a little bit of time and they're introducing a lot of different products, getting profits, you know, getting, you know, getting money, but they're looking at the, other products that they have, the Apple II, they think it's too expensive to produce and it took away sales from the low-end Macintosh. So they're trying to bring out these lower-end consumer-friendly products. And so when they come out in 1990 with the Macintosh LC and they begin efforts to promote that computer um, by advising developer technical support staff to recommend developing applications for Macintosh rather than Apple II, and authorizing salespeople to direct consumers towards Macintosh away from Apple II, uh, the Apple II slowly but surely dies. Now, 91 to 97, this is a whole period of decline because Apple was struggling, right? They have this whole period where they're just I mean, they're going down, they're going down, they're going down. They had the lawsuits with Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft, they start, you know, um, looking at them because what's Microsoft doing? Microsoft starts developing Windows and they focus on, you know, delivering software to cheap commodity personal computers while Apple was delivering richly engineered but expensive and expensive and expensive experience. And so Microsoft is looking at the whole industry, right? They don't want to be pigeonholed. They don't want to just develop for Apple. So that's where all the problems start because now Microsoft is not going to make stuff for Apple. Apple suing Microsoft. They're like, yeah, you ripped us off. You copied our, our user interface. And slowly but surely, that relationship, it never gets any better. Um, IBM is still out there doing their thing. They got, you know, all kind. There's other people entering the game. You got Motorola. You got other people. So computer consumer products are. It's not a novel thing anymore. And so now, fast forward, sales are declining. They're trying to restructure. They got all these products out there. And then '96, Spindler's like. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna get replaced, right? He gets replaced by Gil, Gil Amelio, CEO. And he got his job really because he had a reputation for you know rehabilitating, right? Helping bring the life back to Apple. 
But the problem wasn't rehabilitation. The problem was that they were missing their visionary. They're visionary. Steve Jobs is out there building next. He's building this new software. He's building this new company. He's building this new hardware. He's doing his thing. So they can't, they're like, what are we going to do? This guy is out there, but Gil knows. Gil knows we need to get Steve back. Gil knows we need to get Steve back. And this is an interesting point where uh, there's a guy that kind of gives a little bit of what he thinks is going to happen. Ed Woolard. So you got Fred Anderson, the chief financial officer, saw it as his fiduciary duty to keep Ed Woolard and the board informed of Apple's dire situation. Fred was the guy telling me that cash was draining, people were leaving, and more key players were thinking of it, said Woolard. He made it clear the ship was going to hit the sand soon, and even he was thinking of leaving. That added to the worries Woolard had already had from watching Emilio bumble the shareholders' meeting. At an executive session of the board in June, with Emilio out of the room, Woolard described to current directors how he calculated their odds. Their odds, you guys, of surviving. Not of coming out with new products, not of turning the ship, of surviving. So check this out. If we stay with Gill as CEO, I think there's only a 10% chance we will avoid bankruptcy, he said. If we fire him and convince Steve to come take over, we have a 60% chance of surviving. If we fire Gill, don't get Steve back, and have to search for a new CEO, then we have a 40% chance of surviving. The board gave him authority to ask Jobs to return. It's return of the Jedi, but it's the return of Steve Jobs. Now, they go back and he calls Jobs, right? The board's going to fire Emilio, he said, and it wanted Jobs to come back as CEO. Jobs had been aggressive in deriding Emilio and pushing his own ideas about where to take Apple. But suddenly, when offered the cup, he became coy. I will help, he replied. As CEO, Woolard asked. Jobs said no. Woolard pushed hard for him to become at least the acting CEO. Again, Jobs demurred. I will be an advisor, he said. Unpaid. He also agreed to become a board member. That was something he had yearned for, but declined to be the board chairman. That's all I can give right now, he said. After rumors began circulating, he emailed a memo to Pixar employees assuring them that he had not, that he was not abandoning them. You guys ever hear of a little company called Pixar? Oh yeah, by the way, um, he's got this new technology that Pixar's in love with. He's doing a deal with them. The animators are loving it. Um, he's got his thing. He's doing okay, right? Post Apple, even though he's still got kind of one foot in the door. And so... <clears throat> I get a call from Apple's board of directors three weeks ago asking me to return as Apple to Apple as their CEO, he wrote. I declined. They then asked me to become a chairman. I again declined. So don't worry. The crazy rumors are just that. I have no plans to leave Pixar. You're stuck with me. So he's been at Pixar now doing his thing, um, developing the technology. and But they need him back, right? 
So what do you do? What do you do when this guy's at another company, he's got his own other company, you need him back because the company that he started that you kicked him out of is about to go out of business. What do you do? What do you do? Well, I got an idea. What if, what if we just buy his new company to get him back? That's a thought and that's exactly what they did. They end up making a play in 1997. They buy Next for its operating system and that's what they really needed. They needed the operating system that he was building, that he had built because they were struggling. So they say, okay, we'll buy your company and that's how we'll get them back and that's what they did. When they bought Next, this is the craziest part of the story, when they bought Next, Apple was only three weeks about three weeks you know weeks maybe 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 four five six weeks weeks away from bankruptcy you know weeks maybe four five six maybe seven eight not that many three six nine there are weeks weeks can't get an exact number because we don't have the financials, but they were weeks. They were le- literally on the doorstep of bankruptcy. So that was like a Hail Mary play. We're going to buy your company. Now you're back. We need you back. But he's still like, I don't want to be the CEO. So they're like, well, we got to find a CEO. So what could we call you? So they call him the ICEO. <laughs> iPhone, iPad, iPod, iTouch, iThis, iWatch. ICEO. So he becomes the ICEO, but the I is standing for interim. So in the meantime, CEO. But they knew when they get him back in the room, they get him back in the in the company, they kind of had a, a thought, you know, that he's gonna, you know, become who they thought he would become again, which is that visionary that loves this company so much that he started, mind you, loves this company so much that he wants to take over. And that's what happened. That luckily is what happened. So he talks to Emilio and he's looking at Emilio and he's just like, yeah, you guys, basically you lost your way. You lost your way. Um, That's what he's kind of telling them. And he said, when I got down to offer, or when Jobs told him, when I got thrown out of Apple, I immediately went back to work and I regretted it. He offered to be a sounding board if Emilio ever wanted more advice. Amelio was stunned but managed to mumble a few words of thanks. He turned to his wife and recounted what Jobs said. In ways, I still like the man, but I don't believe him, he told her. I was totally taken in by Steve, she said, and I really feel like an idiot. Join the crowd, her husband replied. Steve Wozniak, who was himself now an informal advisor to the company, was thrilled that Jobs was coming back. He forgave easily. It was just what we needed, he said, because whatever you think of Steve, he knows how to get the magic back. Nor did Jobs triumph over Emilio over Emilio surprise him. As he told Wired shortly after it happened, Gil Emilio meets Steve Jobs game over. That Monday, Apple's top employees were summoned to the auditorium. Emilio came in looking calm and relaxed. Well, I'm sad to report that it's time for me to move on, he said. 
Fred Anderson, who had agreed to be interim CEO, spoke next, and he made it clear that he would be asking or he would be taking his cues from Jobs. Then, exactly 12 years since he had lost power in a July 4th weekend struggle, Jobs walked back on stage at Apple. So we're coming up on the 4th of July, so think about it. It was 4th of July, 12 years earlier, he loses the power struggle, he's out of the company, here he comes, back on stage. It immediately became clear that whether or not he wanted to admit it publicly or even to himself, Jobs was going to take control and not be a mere advisor. This is awesome, right? This is awesome. He's back. As soon as he came on stage that day wearing shorts, sneakers, and a black turtleneck, he got to work reinvigorating his beloved institution. And check out what he says. This is what he says his first day back in front of the key people in the auditorium. Okay, tell me what's wrong with this place, he said. There were some murmurings, but Jobs cut them off. It's the products! He answered, so what's wrong with the products? Again, there were a few attempts to answer until Jobs broke in to hand down the correct answer. The products suck, he shouted. There's no sex in them anymore. Woolard was able to coax Jobs to agree that his role as an advisor would be a very active one. Jobs approved a statement saying that he had agreed to step up my involvement with Apple for up to 90 days, helping them until they hire a new CEO. The clever formulation that Woolard used in his statement was that Jobs was coming back as an advisor leading the team. <laughs> they can't say it because they want to, like, there is, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like he's an advisor uh, leading the company, right? They can't say it, um, but we all know what's going on. Steve is back, and he's back in a big way. So immediately, you know, what he starts doing, and, and this is kind of where he, he actually, if you think about like a rocket ship and the engines weren't working, he's back. He's redesign like he's reconfiguring the company. He's looking at all these products. We got this, we got that. We're trying to be the, they were trying to be the me too technology company in the industry and that's not what Apple was and so he gets rid of all of these products he basically told them they suck <clears throat> and he's looking at all this stuff and he's like yeah this is this is a bunch of shit are you guys nuts you brought me here to fix this thing and people are the key he says Jobs argued when the board proposed a study that could take two months Jobs exploded are you nuts he paused for a long moment of silence, then continued, guys, if you don't wanna do this, I'm not coming back on Monday because I've got thousands of key decisions to make that are far more difficult than this. And if you can't throw your support behind this kind of decision, I will fail. So if you can't do this, I'm out of here. And you can blame it on me. You can say Steve wasn't up for the job. So they're looking at this and He's looking at it and he's like kind of laying down the law. You know, they lost a lot of key people and he needs people. He needs these key people. And so he comes in and 
he looks at the company and then it goes on to say here, instead of declaring victory and thanking the board, Jobs continued to seethe at having to answer to a board he didn't respect. Stop the train. This isn't going to work, he told Woolard. This company is in shambles and I don't have time to wet nurse the board. So I need all of you to resign or else I'm going to resign and not come back on Monday. The one person who could stay, he said, was Woolard. <laughs> so he's basically coming in. This is a note, right? He remembers what happened last time. The board had too much control and that's how his ass ends up getting fired from the company he started. Fool me once, shame on, shame on you, right? Fool me twice, shame on me. He's not gonna let this happen again. So he's firing everybody and rebuilding the board. So goes on to say, most members of the board were aghast. Jobs was still refusing to commit himself to come back full time or being anything more than an advisor. Yet he felt he had the power to force them to leave. The hard truth, however, was that he did have, the have that power over them. They could not afford for him to storm off in a fury, nor was the prospect of remaining an Apple board member very enticing by then. After all they'd been through, most were glad to be let off, Willard recalled. Once again, the board acqui acquiesced. It made only one request. Would he permit one other director to stay? In addition to Willard, it would help the optics. Jobs assented. They were an awful board, a terrible board, he later said. I agreed they could keep Ed Woolard and a guy named Gareth Chang, who turned out to be a zero. He wasn't terrible, just a zero. Woolard, on the other hand, was one of the best board members I've ever seen. He was a prince, one of the most supportive and wise people I've ever met. Wow. Among those being asked to resign was Mike Markula, who in 1976 as a young venture capitalist had visited the Jobs garage, fallen in love with the nascent computer on the workbench, guaranteed a $250,000 line of credit, and become the third partner and one-third owner of the new company. Over the subsequent two decades, he was the one constant on the board, ushering in and out a variety of CEOs. He had supported Jobs at times, but also clashed with him, most notably when he sided with Scully in the showdowns of 1985. With Jobs returning, he knew that it was time for him to leave. Right, you ain't staying. Scully cannot stay. Or not Scully, uh, Markula. Even though he'd been there forever, he helped you know, find Scully, but he also didn't forget you sided with the enemies. You got me kicked out of my own company. So that's it. So all this happens. Now Jobs has to do some work and he goes back to his old boy, Billy Gates. They got to rekindle this little, um, this little tiff that they had, this problem that they had because Jobs, he's like, listen, Microsoft is developing software that everybody wants. We need to be a partner. And so he remembers what happened. They had a good thing going. It all fell apart. A lot of it had to do with him, but he goes back and he brings, you know, Gates back in. He announces this new kind of formation of the Microsoft and Apple partnership. People are like blown away at first. They're like, oh my God, like they're like, he's the enemy. What are you doing? But they need Microsoft. 
Microsoft, honestly, I mean, I don't know if Microsoft really needs them, but they need, they do need Microsoft because Microsoft is developing um, some really, really key software. And so after they've been at war for over a decade over a variety of copyright and patent issues, most notably whether Microsoft had stolen the look and feel of Apple's graphical user interface, just as Jobs was being eased out of Apple in 1985, John Scully had struck a surrender deal. Microsoft could license the Apple GUI for Windows 1.0, and in return, it would make Excel exclusive to the Mac for up to two years. In 1988, after Microsoft came out with Windows 2.0, Apple sued. Scully contended that the 1985 deal did not apply to Windows 2.0 and that further refinements to Windows, such as copying Bill Atkinson's trick of clipping overlapping windows had made the infringement more blatant. So they got all kinds of things going on. Apple's losing the case, the various appeals and remnants of the litigation and threats of new suits lingered. So all this is happening. And then finally, you know, when Steve's back, Apple's about to go out of business. He's like, you know what? We need to stop. We need to work together. We need to turn this around. And Jobs calls up Bill Gates and it's like, hey, man. I'm going to turn this thing around. Bill always had a soft spot for Apple. We got him into the application software business. The first Microsoft apps were Excel and Word for the Mac. So I called him and said, I need help. Microsoft was walking over Apple's patents. I said, if we keep up our lawsuits a few years from now, we could win a billion dollar patent suit. You know it and I know it, but Apple's not going to survive that long if we're at war. I know that. So let's figure out how to settle this right away. All I need is a commitment that Microsoft will keep developing for the Mac and an investment by Microsoft in Apple so it has a stake in our success. So check that out. That's a twist. That's a little plot twist. So Jobs gets Microsoft to basically become an investor, be invested in Macintosh, in Apple, in their products, in developing their software. And that's really where it's the beginning of a new Apple. They get rid of all the products. He gets rid of all the all the garbage. And then he comes out with the killer campaign, right? They did it in 84, so it's time to do it again. 84 was the, you know, the launch of the Macintosh. Well, now here we are in 97, and it's time to do it again. And the campaign that's launched is the Think Different campaign. That Think Different campaign became the ethos, became the war cry, became the battle cry, became the song for Apple um, from that point forward for the next really 20-something years to today. And when they launched that campaign, they launched it with an iconic uh, commercial with a lot of Steve's, uh, you know, heroes, a lot of Steve's uh, people that he looked up to, all kinds of, all kinds of iconic figures. So Think Different, that campaign was um, really, I mean, the rest of Apple. You know, it kept Apple going. It kept Apple on the forefront of technology. It kept Apple, um, it kept really Apple alive. And Apple went on to, Steve and Apple went on to introduce some of the game changers, got into the, 
you know, the, the Mac, right? The iMac got into the iPod, got into the iPhone, got into the iPad. I mean, all of these products hit after hit after hit, but it really all began with that Think Different campaign. Let me see, I think I've got the Think Different commercial here. We're gonna take a little check on that real quick. I'm gonna put it up here. You'll be able to hear it, or you may be able to see it, depending on where you're watching or where you're consuming this from. Here we go. So this is the campaign, this is the turning point. This is when Apple really pivoted, if you want to say that, into what we know today. So let's see if we can get this going here. You know what I can do? I'll pull it up because I want to be able to show everybody and let everybody take a little look. So I'm going to go back here. See if I can pull it up on here. So some of the people, if you haven't seen this, I mean, you can go on YouTube, you can check it out, but the Think Different campaign, you had like uh, Picasso, you had um, Albert Einstein, you had, who else did you have on there? All right, here we go. And I've got the, I've got the, the dialogue from the campaign but it starts with the crazy ones. And so when you start thinking about the crazy ones and you're looking at all of these iconic figures, you know, Amelia Earhart, John Lennon, Bob Dylan, Charlie Chaplin, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, all of these different um, iconic figures. All right, there we go. There we go. Let's see if we can get this going here. Put up the volume. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, but the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Boom. Boom. Think different. And that was it, guys. That was what was the pivoting point and Apple went on to change, literally change the world. Um, so that Think Different campaign is really what launched it. It was like a rebirthing uh, of Apple. 
And then hit after hit after hit, Steve Jobs went on to uh, lead that company. And, and the rest, as they say, is history. And, you know, he was battling throughout that. He was battling cancer. He had a couple different bouts of cancer, came back, you know, a few times, uh, you know, went into remission, came back again, went into remission, came back. And you can kind of see in those, you know, those later years when he was doing some of his presentations when he was sick and, you know, he had to, he had to uh, cancel, you know, some of those presentations. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it did, um, it did kind of come to an end in the late 2000s. In January, he actually announced he was going to take a six-month medical leave. And that was really kind of the beginning of, of the end. You know, his absence, you know, from the company, it was definitely felt. Everybody, you know, kind of knew that he was sick and everybody knew, you know, he, he may come back, he may not come back, but Apple continued to lead. And when he brought out, you know, the, um, when he brought out the unveilings of the iSeries, when iPod, you know, iPhone, um, it really kind of was there that Apple established itself as like, this is the company that's the innovation company. This is the company where designers, you know, Johnny Ive, one of their head designers, this is the company that, you know, where people uh, wanna work at. This is the company where everybody, everybody, if you're some kind of designer, you know, if you're an artist and you want to build game-changing products, you you know that's where you want to be. You know that's where you want to be. And so Steve was out until you know June, and um, he was focusing on his health and trying to you know to get better. But Apple was still thriving. You know he had built such a solid core team of designers and such a, a solid group of of people around him that the company continued to thrive. The company continued to be um, incredible. And when they brought out the iPad was brought out in January of 2010. And that's where, you know, the tablet market was really formed around um, the launch of the iPad. And they continued to roll, continued to roll. And then the iOS system, you know, started and um, iOS, we, I think now we're on iOS you know, 13, I guess, 14. We're coming up on iOS 14, the constant updates to the operating system, which really, if you think back to that whole feud with with Apple and them buying Next, it was really that operating system is what they were after. They needed that. Uh, but the company has continued to thrive. And unfortunately, um, October of 2011, that's when Steve Jobs uh, passed away. And then now... Tim Cook, who took over, is now still leading the company, and they still are innovating. You know, a lot of people are like, well, they haven't brought out anything incredible in so long, and this and that. I mean, but the iWatch, game changer. My favorite new product of all, the AirPods. AirPods, AirPods Pro, game changer. Um, the pencil they brought out, the new iPads, the iPad Pros, they're going to continue to innovate. But... Um, that, you know, is kind of the end of the story for now. It's continuing to be written 45 years 
pushing 45 years and, and it'll continue to be written. So hopefully you guys took a lot away. Hopefully you guys learned some cool things about Apple, about Steve Jobs. Um, and then maybe we'll come back and revisit and talk about, you know, what's happened over the last, you know, nine years going on 10 years since Tim Cook has been um, leading the company, but it continues to be a dominant, one of the most valuable, I think it's like number three right now as far as most valuable companies on the planet. You know, thinking about the valuation, I mean, that's crazy. And it all started from a garage with two Steves tinkering around with some electronics. So think about it, guys. Anything is possible um, if you have the vision and you have the persistence and you have the, the guts to go for it and try it. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode of Storytime. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to move into the next series. We're going to be covering one of my all-time favorite companies ever. Um, and you'll know why as soon as I get started on that one. So I'll catch you guys on the next episode of Storytime. Um, thanks again for being here. Hope you guys got a lot of takeaways. Leave comments. Share this with friends. Share this with everyone that you can. And we'll see you guys on the next episode of Storytime. Thanks for watching. Hey guys, Sunny D here again. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode. What a story, huh? What a crazy ride. Not only do you get fired, but you come back to the company and they buy your company to get you back and then you come back and fire everybody that fired you. How the hell does that happen? <laughs> that only happens when you are 100% convinced, you are 100% convicted, you are 100% sure in what you're doing and why you're doing it. You have to be not only self-aware, but you have to just be totally, totally, totally obsessed with the idea and your belief. That's the only way something like that happens. So hopefully you guys got some cool takeaways. I'd love to hear about it in comments. I'd love for you to leave a five-star rating, write a review on this podcast, because if you do that, if you do that, not only are you going to help the podcast get discovered by other people, because that's going to help it move up in the rankings, but I'm also going to, when you send me a screenshot that you did that, I'm also going to send you an iHeartYFYI t-shirt full free for doing that. So I appreciate it. That would definitely help out. Um, but hopefully you guys got inspired. I know I did by this story, the story of Apple, the story of Steve Jobs. There's so much more. If you, if you get an opportunity, you want to check out an amazing book, Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. There's a couple different movies. Some are documentary style. Some are more you know, theatrical style about his life, about his work. Just incredible. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this series. I'm excited to move into the next series of Storytime. Hopefully you can join one day live in the mornings on Instagram or Facebook for a live Storytime. We can engage there. Um, if not, you know, you can always catch the recordings here on the YFY podcast. For all things YFY podcast, go to yfyipodcast.com. So thanks again for tuning into the podcast. And remember, this is the place where you come to learn how to build your business right once or else you will be doomed to have to build it again. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.